stronger than your dad. Well, my dad's richer than your dad. Well, my dad's even richer because he's smarter than your dad. Well, I don't care about that. My dad's got more hair than your dad, beat that. Well, I couldn't because my dad had less hair than my But so the conversation went on and the conversation continues and there seems to be no end to it. From an early age, we learn how to be competitive. We learn how to be one up on the next person. More important, more whatever, even if we aren't. But we like to let people think that we are. Now I had a great weekend last weekend. One of the most amazing weekends that I've had for a very long time because it was filled with my favorite sport. I watched the competitive of the GAA All-Ireland Final between Tyrone and Mayo, which Tyrone won. Very close match, very exciting, edge of my seat. I watched Chelsea win 3-0, then watched the best ladies tennis match that I have ever seen since the days of Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett, Steffi Graf. The competitiveness of two teenagers, both 18 was amazing, with Emma Rajukanya winning in two straight sets. The first qualifier in history to win a Grand Slam ladies final without dropping a set. What an achievement for an 18-year-old. So maybe there is hope for British tennis after all, particularly ladies tennis. In all of this, though, the media play a never-ending lineup of banter about the teams, the players, the coaches, the supporters, and, of course, predictions about who will be the best on the day. Well, last weekend, they only got one out of three. But one of the characteristics that God has built into our humanity is to be competitive, driven, spirited, ambitious, motivated, and determined. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but sometimes this competitive drivenness affects the way we treat other people. We become so determined that we forget about other people and their feelings and their needs because selfishness and striving to get what we want distracts us. What struck me more than anything about Emma Rajakanyu, I can never say her name, but I do my best, was her humility and graciousness and groundedness on winning the US Open. When asked the first question, how do you feel? What did she do? She didn't answer, but she congratulated her opponent on an amazing match and highlighted her opponent's skills and talent before answering how she felt. Humility in competitiveness, and long may it last. We find a number of stories in the Bible that describes how jealous rivalry turned relationships between people upside down. Cain and Abel, 
Joseph and his 11 brothers, Jacob and Esau, Saul and David. And today we hear of the disciples squabbling among themselves about who the most important disciples were, who was the greatest among them. Now we don't know exactly how that conversation went or what started it. But we might think, well, actually it's almost a bit childish squabbling about a pecking order among the disciples that determined who was more important than the others. After all, they were all called equally. You can guarantee that this kind of discussion was bound to lead to ill feelings. In Jesus' time, the followers of a Jewish rabbi did have a pecking order, with the more important person sitting closest to the rabbi at meals and worship, having greater authority in the community and at meetings. But in truth, the disciples were following the ways of the rest of Judaism and the community in which they lived. They are importing into their relationship with Jesus pride, self-importance, selfishness, and superiority over one another. The disciples, of course, thought that they had been talking out of Jesus' earshot. So then what they had been discussing, they wouldn't tell him. I wonder why. They didn't quite know exactly how, but they knew that their thinking was very different to that of Jesus. And this is why. In the first part of the Gospel reading, we hear Jesus telling the disciples, the Son of Man will be handed over to those who will kill him. Three days later, however, he will rise to life. And we're told that the disciples didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. The idea of a humble, suffering servant Messiah was incomprehensible to them. They were heading toward Jerusalem and they thought that soon Jesus' power will be revealed with his disciples sharing his residency. But how did Jesus' teaching about a suffering servant fit in? What is great about that? This was just too much for the disciples to take in. So Jesus realizes it's time for a heart to heart with his disciples. He sits down with them, taking the posture, I guess, perhaps of a teacher with his disciples around him and redefine greatness as he said, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. This is so upside down, isn't it? And back to... This is nothing like the way the rest of the world defines greatness. Putting oneself last behind everyone else and being a servant to everyone. Wow, if we were, what a world we'd live in. But Jesus isn't saying that greatness is a bad thing. We need great people. We need great political leaders, great community leaders and church leaders, artists, architects, and so on, and people with great generosity. What Jesus is saying is that greatness is to be flavored not with self-importance and selfishness, but with service and humility, not just sometimes, but all the time. Whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. 
And Jesus goes on to give a little object lesson. We read, Jesus took a child and had him stand in front of them. And said to them, whoever welcomes in my name one of these children welcomes me. Now, why does Jesus associate the act of receiving a little child in his name with being first in God's eyes, with being the greatest? Wouldn't it have been more powerful if Jesus had put his arm around a bondite drug addict, a drunk, a scantily dressed prostitute, badly disfigured leper, or a smelly beggar in rags? Wouldn't that have been more powerful and said more? After all, children are supposed to be wonderful and precious, are they not? Children are protected by laws. They have a certain status and rights. However, we would be wrong in assuming that children in Jesus' time enjoyed the same position in society as they do today. There was a high mortality rate amongst children, a shortage of food, enemies nearby. There was no room to be sentimental about a child. Children were considered the least in society, especially little children who could be here today and gone tomorrow because of sickness, hunger, accident, or the whim of an occupying soldier. But unfortunately, too many children still live in these conditions and are treated as the least of the least in our society today. So get this picture in your mind of Jesus of Jesus putting his arm around this small, insignificant child, a little person who doesn't count for much in the world, and says, whoever welcomes, cares for, meets the needs, embraces someone all important and as inconsequential as this little child, is also embracing me. Now, Jesus is encouraging his disciples and us to follow his example and be the servant of all to the least and the last. What Jesus is teaching us here is not just kindness that is directed to those who need kindness in their lives at that moment. Not just tenderness, but tenderness towards those who really need to experience genuine love. Not just hospitality, but a wide open armed welcome toward those for whom all other doors are shut. This reminds us of Jesus' word 25 when he mentions the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and those in prison and says to us, when you cared for the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And whatever is done to Jesus is done to God himself. This kind of servanthood isn't an optional extra, my friends, that we add to our Christianity if we have the time and the energy. What we are being told today is that service to others is tied up ever so closely with our belief and trust in Jesus. To believe in him also means we will serve those who need and crave for love, those who need help and care, those who long for comfort and shelter. Now for some people this is really radical stuff, 
It's hard. It's a tough call to be like Jesus and to serve as he served and to be humble as he was, thinking nothing of giving himself totally in serving our needs. And this goes in some way against our human nature. And as much as we might wish that Jesus had never said, whoever wants to be first must place himself first of all and be the servant of all, he did. And that radical call to discipleship still stands today and sends a daily challenge for each one of us and for this congregation, for our deanery synod, our general synod, and indeed, for the whole Church of England, and don't start me on that one. Constantly, we need to check and see just how well we, as Jesus' representatives, are putting our arms around the least and the insignificant, welcoming them. Or has it been easier to follow the world's idea of greatness and pursue our own needs? and ignore the ways of Jesus, namely placing ourselves last and being the servant of all. As I said, this is the tough, rough road of discipleship. Walking the road with Jesus, there are no extra clauses in the text that softens the impact. But let's always remember, Jesus knew he, who he was talking to when he made those radical statements about discipleship in the new kingdom. He was talking to his 12 disciples, who at times could be very slow to catch on. And he was talking to us, who can be just as slow to catch on, let's be honest. He wasn't talking to perfect people, but to people who are on a journey, discovering what it means to be servants in the kingdom of God. It's a lifelong journey. And every day we have victories and every day we have defeats. But it is because of Jesus and his cross that those defeats are turned into victories. He came as a true servant, humble and loving, and gave his life for you and me to make us his children and enable us to walk in his ways. While we walk on this planet, we will get caught up in thinking and talking and acting out greatness in the same way the disciples did as they walked along that road to Capernaum. And when they were called out by Jesus, they were embarrassed by their behavior. It's for those times when we are overcome and caught out by Jesus with embarrassment and guilt that we are reminded that he is our savior who died for us and gives his body and blood to us in the Eucharist. When we are confronted with tough texts like this one, we need his forgiveness. The Spirit reassures us that we are still loved by God, even though at times we feel miserably. Continually, the Spirit guides us back to those words of Jesus, which I ask you to take away with you today and reflect on in the coming week. Whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the service servant of all. 
may God in his wisdom and his compassion grant us the ears to hear those words daily and to live them out each and every day of our Christian journey. Amen.